Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, bodybuilder. Today I'm joined again by Eric Helms. Big honor to have him back. And as you guys have known, we've kind of been running this little sub-podcast on my Swole Radio podcast, the Eric Helms and Dr. Swole show. But uh, it's been great having this continuity where we've been covering a lot of fundamental training concepts. And today we're going to be switching over a little bit more into the diet and nutrition realm. So thanks again for being on the show, Eric. No, absolutely. It's been an honor to kind of go through the A to Z of training. And uh, I think all of your listeners have, have hopefully, if they've, if they've tracked that sub podcast, like you said, um, gotten their, their, their ducks in a row in the right order, you know, like big duck, medium duck, small duck, all the, <laughs> all the right ducks in the right places. So yeah, it'd be cool to start, uh, start touching on the, the kitchen side of things for sure. Sweet. So yeah, today we're going to be starting off by talking about the major blocks of nutrition, which are going to be calorie intake. And we'll also be touching on body recomposition, which is a pretty hot topic, especially in YouTube fitness. So yeah, in terms of starting off, Eric, I think a key decision a bodybuilder needs to make is, you know, the quintessential question of bulk or cut. Mm. So how should people make that decision? Yeah, I think it, it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on, you know, what are your goals? Uh, where are you currently? Um, and then to some degree, you know, like what is your current like relationship with food, uh, which we can, we can, we can touch on, on, on a side point as well. Um, Cause there's a lot of people who come into their lifting career as someone who is potentially trying to lose 50 pounds. You know, they, they, they enjoy the lifting process. They want to change their physique. Um, there's also people who like say myself were quite skinny when they started lifting. Uh, and then there's people everywhere in between. And I think the people who maybe struggle the most are those who are in the in-betweens, you know, that's why the question is, should I cut or bowl? Cause in those two examples, it seems quite obvious. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a good chunk of the population who, you know, if you ask them like, Hey, what would your ideal physique look like? The place they want to get to involves both fat loss and muscle gain. So when that is the case, obviously the question of should I be, you know, bulking or cutting first is, is, is a more challenging one. Mm -hmm. um, so I think probably the answer to that question, um, it depends on dispelling a few myths, you know, and knowing, you know, what, what do, do I have to do anything or am I shooting myself in the foot if I, if I make the quote unquote wrong decision, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm. But so, to some degree, it comes down to, personal preference, I think, especially uh, when it comes to uh, the, the decision to bulk or not. Because um, I, I think many people believe that if you are too high in body fat, uh, bulking will do more harm than good, hmm. um, <clears throat> which, which is probably not true. Uh, and then the, the other way to look at it is, well, okay, is, is there a point where I, where I really should cut, where I, that would benefit me the most? And I think that actually is more of a psychological question you know, because if you do put yourself in a surplus and you're already not liking your current level of body fat uh, and you put on muscle and you put on body fat, um, is that going to sustain your motivation? Is that something that you're going to like the way that looks? Um, and there's deeper questions as to what should you be motivated by and how do you see yourself, et cetera. Hmm. So it's, it's actually one of those very complex questions, but a simple way to look at it is that if you're really new to the, new to the game um, and you're not like very high in body fat to where that is something that you want to focus on. Um, there's probably no harm in putting yourself in, in, a, in a modest calorie surplus and putting on muscle because you're going to put on a lot. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, you always have the opportunity to cut down the line. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So that's kind of the closest thing to a default, but it's actually quite individualized and nuanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point where you know, a lot of people kind of jump on the comments and say like, hey, hey, man, I'm like five, nine, I weigh this many pounds, what should I do? And it's mm -hmm. like, there's a lot yeah. of things that come into play. Are there sort of, you know, general ball, ballpark body fat percentage ranges where you think the answer is pretty clear? You know, so, so I, I think you, you can put them out there, but it is almost not really super needed um, until someone says, look, I have the goal to be a competitor. Um, because if it, they don't have a goal to be the competitor, what you're basically doing is like, well, typically the way this goes is, Hey, if you're over 15% body fat or 20% body fat, those are typical ones you hear as a male mm -hmm. or add, you know, eight to that. If you're, you know, over if you're outside of the range of like low twenties to high 20% body fat for women, uh, then you should cut first before you bulk. But if we understand the data on what happens when you're high in body fat and you try to put on muscle mass um, versus kind of what people often say, we start to see, well, there's no physiological reason that there's anything wrong with trying to put on muscle mass at a high body fat level. Hmm. So you're basically making an assumption about what the person will like or, or what they, how they feel about their body. So I often, instead of saying, it's so like, for example, if we say, hey, if, if you bulk when you're 20% body fat as a male, yeah, you're going to put on some muscle, but you're going to, you're not going to like the way you look because you're also getting into this body fat percentage range where you can't see your physique. You know, you can't see the muscle mass gains. And that could be true. But now we are assuming something about the person's motivation. Like what if they're actually a power lifter and they're trying to put on muscle mass and like, hey, if they hit a squat PR, they don't really care, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe they're just, you know, really have a balanced mindset and they're thinking about the long term and they're like, you know, I, I really don't care if I, I want to optimize my opportunity now as a novice to put on muscle. And if I don't mm -hmm. look great, like who cares, you know? So honestly, I think that the question should come down to, um, well, ask yourself if you were to put on a little bit of body fat and a fair amount of muscle as a novice right now on top of where you're already at, how would you feel? Mm -hmm. And that should guide your decision instead of me saying, well, I think that you probably won't like what you see at this body fat percentage or higher. Um, and the reason why is not not only am I assuming someone's potential, uh, you know, body image, I'm also asking them to estimate their body fat percentage, which we know is a huge landmine, you know, yeah. like the, the number of times I've seen someone who's 25% body fat, say they're 15% body fat, or the number of times I've seen someone who say there's 20% body fat say they're 15% body fat. And it's always 15%. Like you won't ever admit as a guy that you're over 15% as long as you can <laughs> yeah. see something that is like a hint of an ab, right? Um, but, you know, ultimately we, we don't care about body fat percentages. We care about how we look and we associate how we look with just kind of these internet meme ideas of what a body fat percentage is. Hmm. So I think that's something to consider. So that, that, that is, and I, you probably have something to say about that. So I'll pause there because I have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good point where I think a lot of people, yeah, they like to default to just the numbers, right? Where mm -hmm. they're saying like, well, okay, when I hit a certain X number percentage, it's, it has to be a default reaction that, okay, it's time to cut. Otherwise I'm, you know, sacrificing the P ratio or whatever uh, for, for the gains. And yeah, I think that it also depends, as you said, a lot on people's goals, where if someone is, you know, more strength oriented, especially and especially someone a bit early on in their career who may not be competing anytime soon, you don't, you don't necessarily need to be shredded. 
mm-hmm. and I, I think there's a lot of pressure that society puts on you know the the in Instagram fitness culture where you see a lot of people maintaining these crazy shredded physiques year-round and sometimes that isn't really sustainable I think I'd say most of the time it's not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah I think that brings up another question that I've had is that like let's say someone you someone's trying to look at this from the optimal long-term perspective like career ultimate you know optimal hypertrophy I eventually want to be a competitive bodybuilder but I'm kind of early on in my journey and they're kind of maybe in this skinny fat phase where they're just like oh should I just keep bulking for a while and bulk in order to capture my beginner gains Mm. yes I think that is um that that's a relatively easy one to answer in my opinion because one thing that does potentially throw a wrench in this is when you're dealing with someone who does want to compete anytime in the mid to near future, because then it just becomes a logistical challenge. Okay, let's say you're, let's say, yeah, your ideal physique would be a little bit lower body fat. And let's say you're not influenced by social media, because a lot of the times that the issue there is not that you're, you're higher than your goal. It's that your goal is unsustainable. Like, mm. you know, like your goal would have you walking around with, you know, a quarter of your testosterone levels and it's only five pounds over stage weight. Mm. And you just have this warped view from social media. Um, but let's say you don't have that warped view and you just are, like you said, you know, quote unquote, skinny fat, um, which not a huge fan of the term, but we all know what that means. So we'll go with it, right? Um, so the, uh, let's say that that's you, you're a little higher in body fat than, than you would like to be. You probably could walk around a little leaner, but you also want to put on a lot of muscle. You're not competing in the near future, but you maybe are competing in the, in the mid to long-term future. Mm-hmm. Now that's less of an issue. Um, in, in my opinion with, with going into a bulk and maybe driving your body fat up to a point that would be logistically challenging if you needed to do a contest prep. Cause if you, let's say you want to compete even in two years, right. And you're, let's say you're an early stage, uh, intermediate. So you still got some good productive bulks left in you that aren't just going to, you know, put a bunch of body fat on you, man, you know, let's say you spend most of the year, you know, bulking and now you're say 40 pounds over stage weight, which doesn't really look that bad on a decently muscular, more or less tall male. You know, the equivalent of that would probably be like 25 pounds over for, uh, you know, a woman who's, uh, you know, you know, reasonably muscular in that same place. That's not bad. You know, like no one's going to call you out on the street and be like, what you're a bodybuilder like like you're gonna look good in clothes you you may be a little softer than you like and you certainly wouldn't look good or wouldn't wouldn't look appropriate i should say on a bodybuilding stage you know in your trunks or your uh, your posing suit and the issue there is that you've worked so hard for this year to start putting on you know muscle mass and now you're you know you're 25 pounds over as a woman or 40 pounds over as a taller guy or 30 pounds to 35 is like a middle or light lightweight guy and you've got a diet ahead of you now you're looking at least at like a seven month diet to try to, you know, take that off while trying to preserve as much muscle mass as you can. And either, even if you do a great job, just the length of that diet is eating into the time that you could potentially be putting on muscle mass, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not a great position to be in when you're close to a competition, but if you've got, you know, another three years before you're actually going to get on stage, you know, you get three or four mini cuts that only last say four to eight weeks that you intersperse with those you know, big nine month blocks of, of putting on muscle mass. And each one of those can, can clean you up by, you know, like eight pounds of fat. And now you're looking at being two thirds of that same size over stage weight, but with all the muscle mass. So I kind of am working backwards from what my advice is, but let's say, yeah, you're, you're that skinny fat uh, person. The next show is not coming at least for three years, nothing wrong with doing an extended bulk and getting to 
probably a higher than recommended body fat range than most people would say, you know, we're talking getting into the thirties, like legitimate 30, 30% body fat range for women or into the mid twenties for a guy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, because you have the time to, to, to make some adjustments down the line. And the, with that said, it's not because you should be worried about missing out on your new gains. So that, that, that's an important caveat. It's, it's just that, you know, if, if you're not in the mood to diet or you don't feel like it, or you'd prefer to just, you know, focus on gaining, um, if you're motivated to do that, I'll be honest, like there's a reason why most fat loss attempts don't succeed long-term with people just maintaining their, their fat loss. Hmm. Um, it's because it's, it's really not that fun. You know, it's like, you do see yourself getting leaner and it's, it can be motivating, but like, especially for someone who is like eager to put on muscle mass at the same time, uh, you're making the process of, of progressive overload a little harder. You're making the environment a little less ideal for all that. You're, you're potentially, if you're losing a fair amount of weight in that process, like you're not really going to like what you look like on the other side either. Like you're getting leaner, but again, you're, you're, you're skinny, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to feel like you're getting smaller and you're probably going to be having uh, more hard earned gains in strength uh, during that, during that phase. So it's, I think if you can focus a little more on progressive overload, the fact that you're putting on muscle mass that you're investing in the future and not making kind of what I would say is a more short-term decision at this stage, um, that's not really going to pay off. Like it's very rare that you see someone who's skinny fat, who does a cut and then they go, I look great. And most of the time they're like, oh man, I have way less muscle than I thought, yeah. you know? So I, th I think it probably makes sense in this case for you to go for a, um, a gaining phase mm. and just accept the fact that, you know, like I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, exert some delayed gratification. If my goal is to actually get on stage in the long run, the thing that's going to take the most time and that will need most of my attention is putting on muscle because I can lose body fat relatively quickly. You know, you can lose eight pounds of fat in a six week mini cut with very little losses in, in lean mass when you're high in body fat, but to put on eight pounds of lean tissue, even as a, a late stage novice, early stage intermediate might take you a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So, so where should your focus be? You know? Yeah, no, great point. And I think another thing that comes into play when you're talking about beginners is that just their efficiency at fat loss, where I think mm -hmm. that, you know, for a beginner, often you'll see people trying to lose fat and they're just kind of spinning their wheels where yes. they'll be running these little bulk and cut phases, but not really getting anywhere. And mm -hmm. I, I can see how some people might, you know, be better served just really focusing on that progressive overload and building. I think you already, you just touched on that where, you know, the, the question of if someone runs their initial, you know, newbie phase inefficiently, like let's say they're in a calorie deficit, or maybe they just have something off with their training. Do they lose out on total gains down the line? No. And that, that's, I'm really glad you, you touched back on that. Cause I kind of planted the seed yeah. and I forgot that I did. Um, I'm a terrible gardener. <laughs> really. gains. Yeah. So like when you think about it, like why do we have a newbie phase, right? And it's because we haven't made those adaptations. Mm -hmm. So we have a low barrier to entry to make these initial adaptations and you get newbie gains in VO2 max. If you start running, mm -hmm. you get newbie gains in free throw shooting. If you start playing basketball, you get newbie gains in, you know, being able to kick better if you're doing martial arts and not look like you're going to fall over and you get newbie gains in muscle mass and 
you know, doing a squat and a deadlift and a, and a bench uh, with, with better technique and all of a sudden, you know, being like sometimes literally almost twice as strong within the first three months. Um, and so the only newbie gains that you're going to potentially miss out on, but you're going to get them anyway, would be some of those technical execution things. So let's say you're lifting on like a crash diet you know, which is not uncommon for people first getting into it. You know, they start eating clean. They don't really know what they're doing. They want to get shredded and big at the same time. They don't follow great influences. And they're just basically on like, you know, egg whites and, 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 and rice and chicken. And all of a sudden they actually are, are dieting. They are getting leaner, but they're, they've really shortchanged how much muscle mass they can put on because just that really low energy availability. Um, but let's say they get exposed to some, some good lifting videos, or maybe they even get a personal trainer who doesn't touch their diet, but helps them learn how to lift. They are going to make some rapid gains in strength. They're going to look like they know what they do, they're, they're doing to a certain degree when they do those movements. So they won't get those, those gains really quick. However, once they actually do put themselves in a position where they can put on muscle mass and their body is physiologically ready to do that, they're going to see the same new gains that they might've had mm -hmm. before because their body still hasn't made them. So that's really the only um, determination of whether you'll have new gains is, have you had new gains yet? Hmm. If you have, then you can't have them again. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't, then you haven't, you know? And I, I mean, you, I, I could think of an outside case where, you know, someone who is, you know, in their late fifties starts doing this and they manage to spin their wheels for 10 years, you know, at 65, you, you might not be able to make the same kind of new gains you would if you'd mm -hmm. started training even 10 or 15 years ago. But I have seen, you know, middle-aged men and women who start training and they make new gains, you know? So I think uh, the, the effects of age uh, are, are, are often over-exaggerated and it is definitely not a win. And I also think the effects of being a teenager over-exaggerated. Like people describe that as a natural steroid cycle. Um, but realistically, like some of the steroid cycles that are out there are still like 10 times the amount mm -hmm. of testosterone that even a, you know, a, a teenage uh, male is going to have. So I think um, really it does come down to if you haven't had your newbie gains, they're still right there, right for the taking. So, uh, which is great news for everybody, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And swinging back around kind of to the broad overview lens where, yeah, let's say someone is looking at this of, you know, I want the best overall like competitive outlook in terms of like my whole career. Like I'm, I'm not worried about five, 10 years down the line, you know, you've, you hear people talking about how people should spend their, you know, twenties bulking and then their thirties, you know, getting shredded and, you know, kind of that older bodybuilder grainy look kind of mm. uh, paradigm floating around. What are your thoughts on kind of the overall planning for a strategy for a bodybuilder? Yeah. So I think it really comes down to with just trying to uh, be efficient and efficiency comes down to, for a bodybuilder, thinking about the fact that there are mandatory aggressive, brutal cuts that you're going to do to get on stage. Mm -hmm. um, and even if, even if you're someone like me who competes very sporadically, um, you know, like at, at the most frequent every two years, you know, like I competed in 2011 and then I had a huge break because I was doing my, my, my doctoral and master's degree and, you know, didn't compete again until 2019, but now I'm, I'm done with school. Like I don't have things that are, um, you know, at, like that. And I'm waiting until 2023 to get back on stage. So it's a you know, a four-year delay between uh, competition years. What am I doing? Why? Well, it's just because it takes time to put on muscle mass now since I've been lifting since 2004. You know, I've got a whole, you know, 17-year-old inside of me of lifting, right? So, you know, 
some people would would not be motivated by that as competitors and they might compete more frequently and that's fine don't get me wrong uh, but for me I, I like to give myself a fighting chance at improvement so what i'm doing is i'm matching my time course of my quote-unquote gaining phase big picture not not talking about like eight weeks mm. but we're talking about like from a competitor's like multi-year periodization kind of perspective with nutrition i'm thinking about well realistically how much time do i need to focus on mostly bodybuilding being in a surplus most of the time and trying to make some substantive noticeable physique changes i think it's going to take me you know uh, more than a couple of years okay cool so that's going to dictate when i compete again and that uh, maximal estimated rate of muscle gain should therefore to some degree be matched by how quickly you're trying to put on muscle mass when you get down to a, a smaller and smaller unit of time mm -hmm. you know so i'm not gonna be trying to put on a, a pound a week like i might have back when i was a novice or my first six months six months of training mm -hmm. so i think that's what it comes down to is you need to be efficient you need to match the expected rate of weight gain to some degree. And you'll have to tweak this over time with yourself. I mean, I went through two to three attempts at bulking that were just too overzealous, you know, mm -hmm. just not enough good information at the time. And when I was in my first three or four to five years of lifting from, you know, drug-free competitors and, and things like that. So I didn't know where to look to influence my magazines, the equivalent of, you know, the social media today, really, uh, well, bad, bad social media. Um, so, you know, you're going to tweak this and figure out, you know, how much really, what, what rate of weight gain can I put on to where I'm not just putting on a huge proportion of fat compared to the ratio of muscle mass. And you're going to find that that changes over time. And eventually you just need to be in a very slight surplus because being in a bigger surplus doesn't get you anything more noticeable in terms of muscle gain mm -hmm. or what you do get is vastly outpaced by most of that additional energy uh, getting stored with body fat. So uh, there are a couple of ways to approach that, either just slow gaining, you know, what some people call gain-taining or um, the various other terms that mean the same thing that are out there now, um, or other people will take a slightly more aggressive approach, which I think is fine, and then just do more frequent mini cuts to kind of clean up. And I don't think there's necessarily, with, within a reasonable range, I don't think one is more efficient than the other. And what do I think is a reasonable range? And here's a number that I've pulled out of my butt for years that's purely based on anecdote, mm -hmm. is that you have at least like a four to one ratio of time spent in a bulk to time spent in a cut. Um, so that would mean that if you were putting on muscle mass or the attempt of being in a surplus for four months, you could have at the most frequent a one month mini cut after that. Um, and I would probably, and I think, you know, in, anything more than that, like if you go three months to one month, you might be shortchanging yourself. Like you're probably gaining too aggressively to where the efficiency is lower and your body fat is, is coming on too quickly, um, to, to then have to, if you have to take it off, like every, every, you know, quarter you're, you're going, oh, I got to cut again. Like you're gaining pretty fast for someone who is, you know, past their newbie phase. So I think that's a decent way to think of it. You could spend in a year, 11 months of it. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very mild surplus and then do a little bit of a cut at some point. Or you could have every, you know, like I said, every fifth month after four months of being in a, in a surplus, you could do a more aggressive mini cut. Uh, and that those would probably be negligibly different if I had to guess in terms of what the actual outcome would be. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. But if you go to, like, if you go beyond that in either direction, I think you can run into problems. Like if you are always trying to just recomp you know, essentially, and just gaining, or you're in a slight surplus most of the time, but not always. And sometimes you're in a slight deficit or out around maintenance. And, it, you know, for, for two years, three years, mm -hmm. um, 
you're probably gaining a little less muscle than you could have expected with providing a little more nutritional support. And likewise, if you are, you know, every fifth week, I have to do a mini cut for a week just to kind of combat the fact that I was basically on the seafood diet, that's S-E-E food diet, uh, then, then you are, you're, you're, each time you do that, like that's such a high ratio of cuts to bulks that you're, you have less time to actually be putting on muscle mass. So yeah, there's probably a bell curve distribution of what's reasonable. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and debate somebody if they're in that same kind of region as me, because I don't think we have any good evidence to suggest anecdotally otherwise, otherwise that one is better than the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, those are great insights. And I think that, yeah, I call it the bulk to cut ratio. And yeah. I think that I actually think that's a key, a, a central point in thinking about bodybuilding periodization. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'd, I'd love to go down this rabbit hole and writing a book on bodybuilding periodization. But uh, yeah, like, I think that a lot of it is dictated by your level of experience, and how quickly you're able to put on muscle and how effectively you can cut. So I think someone who's more of a beginner, I think that yeah, something like that four to one ratio is going to be a great ballpark. I, I, I put out the same the same recommendation where you're probably able to gain at a fairly like robust rate where you can, you, you want to put on, you want to be gaining at a rate where you can kind of capture all of your muscle gains and not too much more than that. Like you don't want to be, you, the ideal bulk is one where you capture all the muscle, but not necessarily put on excess fat because you'll have to waste time cutting it off later. And then, yeah. And then, a, and then a beginner probably isn't going to be wanting to jump into really aggressive mini cuts or might not be as efficient in that sense, but as you become more experienced, you're going to be putting on less muscle at any given unit of time. So you just don't want to be gaining as rapid uh, a rate. And then you'll be able to cut more effectively where you can very confidently strip off fat quickly while maintaining muscle. And yeah, for, uh, for example, yeah, like for, for myself, then I think my last cycle, I spent eight months bulking and then and then cut off and then cut off in about a three week mini cut. So I'm at that point, I'm kind of getting to like a, a 10 to one uh, bulk to cut ratio, but yeah, it's, it's very individual. And yeah, that kind of segues into the next topic, which is body recomposition. Mm. And I think that this is something that a lot of people ask about, especially on YouTube and people talk about main gaining or gain taining kind of mm -hmm. that concept of, you know, I, I'm going to keep something my calories near to maintenance, or maybe just like a tiny little rate of gain where I'm only putting on muscle. Um, but yeah, in terms of body recomp, I, it's basically the process of building muscle and losing fat at the same time. And I think for a long time, people, bodybuilders said that it was impossible and you, you gotta be in a surplus. I think at this point, um, it's, we can probably say that, it, that we can say that does happen, but, uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, the, the sort of viability of a body recomposition, body comp recomposition approach? Yeah, I think it's important to, to, to dictate, to, to, to clarify, like, where did the, 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 the conversation around this come from mm. and, having been around enough and have, having read a lot of historical accounts and talked to some of the quote unquote old timers, um, older timers, obviously I didn't talk to anyone from like the fifties cause they're not alive anymore, unfortunately. Um, but this largely came as like an oversimplification from the evidence-based community. In my opinion, I think this is one of the times, you know, this, this community has dropped the ball and it's not the only one. And I, I say that as someone who's part of the community, 
So when you're dealing with, let's say we're talking about the 80s and 90s, uh, a community in the bodybuilding community that is largely focused on which foods you eat and more subjective determinants of energy intake. Like, hey, you got to feel like you're, you're eating every couple hours, you're eating large portions, you should feel full, like it's, you know, it's hard, you got to force yourself to get into a surplus, um, which is, you know, partially fueled by the fact that when you're enhanced, you can gain weight at a larger rate. And by the fact that when you're eating super, super, you know, <laughs> clean foods, quote unquote, that you will be more full than you otherwise would have been. Um, the, you know, the conversation back then, people weren't focused on calorie intake, or whether you're in a surplus or a deficit very often. I think they understood those like general concepts, but um, no one was prescribing specific calorie surpluses uh, or, or deficits as a percentage or as a number of calories. And back then there was no one debating the idea that you couldn't, you know, put on muscle while also losing fat in certain instances, you know, that was, there's there no one who's saying that's not possible. What that came from was from when the, uh, the, the pushback against this kind of qualitative and subjective look at food, you know, like the typical diet for a bodybuilding show in the early 2000s, late nineties was basically, you know, you break a period up into 12 weeks. And every like three or four week period, the diet gets more restrictive in terms of the foods that you're allowed to have. Mm -hmm. And essentially you're just cutting carbs and fat uh, throughout and eventually you end up on just veggies and protein, right? And that's the way that you get shredded, which induces a ever increasing calorie deficit. Mm -hmm. So once people started going, look, you know, if you want to diet, it's not about these specific foods. You need to be in a deficit. If you want to be in a deficit, you have to count calories and you have to understand, you know, thermodynamics and energy balance. Listen, to, to lose fat, you got to be in a deficit. To gain weight, you got to be in a surplus. That statement I made is very helpful if you get confused by these subjective qualitative determinants. But a lot of what I just said there was false, right? So you don't have to be in a calorie surplus to gain weight, Right. And even if we looked at it, because we understand that there are the, the energetic uh, value of a pound of lean tissue and a pound of fat are vastly different. We know this from counting macros, right? Like there's four calories per gram, which is a unit of weight, a unit of mass of protein, but there's nine calories per gram for, for, uh, for, for a unit of, of fat, right? So if we were to remove one of those grams, there are different energetic amounts. So if you were to have an equal weight of fat gain and protein gain, and I'm specifically saying protein here, not lean body mass, because it's not 100% protein, it's going to get very complex, you will be in a deficit despite your weight staying the same, right? Because there's a four calorie, uh, you, know, you know, investment and a nine calorie loss, okay? Now this gets even more complex when we realize that maybe 80 to 90% of adipose tissue is composed of fat, but it's got some other stuff in there like water and some protein structures. Uh, and when, a, you know, a pound of lean body mass is actually, the majority of it is not actually protein. Um, so that's confusing, right? And we are not in a, in a light switch on or off state of, of a deficit or a surplus. We are going like every time you eat, even in a small calorie deficit overall, you're in an acute surplus. And then between meals, you get to be in a net deficit. And especially after you sleep, Right. It's like a bank account. You know, if you just got paid, but then you spend money, it's going to fluctuate up or down. You need to have a financial advisor, or at least to look at your account more effectively to see, well, am I currently losing or saving money, right? So that is the same way our bodies operate. And we can eventually get into a physiological state where it's unreasonable to expect us to be able to put on any lean mass while we're also losing body fat. 
um, you know, we were like, let's say that the calorie intake itself is just so low, like that example I gave earlier, uh, that, you know, your body is immediately going, okay, this isn't good. Here are some symptoms of low energy availability, and you're going to start to get reds, and there's going to be a very limited amount of muscle mass you can put on. Or maybe you're just in a very slight deficit, and that's fine, but eventually that slight deficit over time is pushing your body fat down. You're starting to have some, you know, metabolic adaptations, and eventually you get to a point where you're too lean to, to expect any further recomps, and you're going to plateau, right? Or, and also, you've also kind of used up your quote-unquote new gains, which are going to happen despite you know, some of the challenges physiologically, because they're just so low of a threshold. And that's mm -hmm. part of the adaptive nature of being, you know, any creature that's trying to survive, right? Um, you need to be able to make some adaptations in the face of a poor environment, or we wouldn't be here today. You know, if you think about survival of the fittest, mm -hmm. you know, way back in the day when there was not GNCs on every corner, but rather there were, you know, wolves trying to eat us. And we, 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 <laughs> we did not have an industrialized society, let alone an agricultural society. Yeah, like, like you're going to need to be able to adapt. So anyway, the, the, the idea that you have to be in a surplus to gain weight, you must be in a deficit to lose weight is an oversimplification once we start understanding all of those things. So the reality is, is that when you look at all of the resistance training studies out there, and I'm talking thousands of studies where they, since the, the, the 80s, right, where they measure body composition, they have people start resistance training and they don't give them guidance on, on nutrition. They're just focused on the training and like whatever you do with your nutrition is fine. Most of the time, what you see is an increase in muscle mass and either a slight drop in body fat or roughly no change in body fat on average with, with some distribution across the participants. So you could argue that the non-modified state of a novice who is starting in a reasonable kind of body fat percentage range their natural response to training is recomposition. That's how common it is. Mm. Because what we do when we're in a energy regulated state, is when we increase, which means not being super sedentary, not necessarily being in a super modern food environment, uh, is that when we increase our energy expenditure by let's say participating in a study where I'm now lifting weights three days a week, we increase our energy intake, but we don't purposely try to bulk unless the participants told us to. Mm -hmm. Right. So we get into this more matched, still roughly on average around maintenance, and we start gaining all this muscle for our noob gains. And because we're still roughly around maintenance, we might see maybe increases in the water weight, total weight, maybe not. Or we might see even a slight you know, loss in weight because of the energetic value of tissues. But we're going to gain muscle and we're either going to maintain or slightly lose body fat. Typically, that's what happens. You know, when you get this initial big increase in hunger, when you just start lifting weights for the first time. So recomposition is a very normal, natural thing, and it's been observed literally thousands of times. The idea that it is um, impossible because you have to be in a deficit to cut and a surplus to bulk, and therefore you can't do it the two things at the same time. I, while it came from the quote-unquote evidence-based community, it's actually an oversimplification of energy balance, and then something that has been repeated by other people listening to those evidence-based practitioners and making an extrapolation. So it's it's a game of broken telephone is really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, just because it is so obvious and apparent in these novice lifters, that doesn't necessarily mean that that translates towards, oh, we just should just, just recomp mm -hmm. uh, for, for the people who maybe listen to this podcast who are probably past their newbie phase. And there's a couple of reasons why. So for one, when we are talking about recomposition, it's actually a very difficult term to pin down because two people could mean two different things, mm -hmm. right? So if you were to focus on body fat percentage, 
you will see this differently than body fat mass, which is typically what a researcher using DEXA is going to look at. So let's say, for example, that you went from 180 pounds to 190 pounds and you stayed at 10% body fat. You gained a pound of fat. Whether you realize, like, you might not think about it, like, no, I didn't gain any fat mass because my body fat percentage is still the same. That's kind of how most kind of fitness meme people think of. Body fat percentage is how you calculate it. But no, 10% of 180 is 18. 10% of 190 is 19. You gained a pound of fat, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you gained nine pounds of lean tissue. And, you know, maybe two pounds of that was actual protein. So it is, it, it's, it's not an easy thing. But then when you chuck someone in a DEXA, we would say in that case, oh, they, they put on, X amount of lean tissue, they put on X amount of fat mass. And two people look at that very differently in an anecdotal real world scenario versus reading a study. So is that body recomposition? Body fat percentage stayed the same and I gained muscle, but I also gained weight? No, I think that's just a surplus, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but some people would call it, uh, you know, body recomposition. Now you can also get the, uh, the same scenario where someone's body fat percentage went down. Let's say that you did just put on 10 pounds of muscle. You went from 180 to 190, right? But your fat mass stayed at 18 pounds. So that means your body fat percentage went down slightly. You're now nine point something. So I can't math that quick off the fly. Um, so now it looks like you've lost body fat and you've gained muscle, but you haven't lost body fat right? You still have the same amount of fat tissue. If we did a DEXA on you, it is just that it's a smaller proportion of now your total mass. So is that body recomp? I would say, no, that's just a really effective bulk, right? You just put on muscle. You didn't lose any body fat. Mm -hmm. So what a recomposition technically is, is the simultaneous loss of fat mass and gaining of lean tissue. Mm. And most of the time in the real world, when people think they have done that, they're actually in one of those two former scenarios. It's a slight gain of, of fat mass with a large gain in muscle mass. They look better overall and think they got leaner because their body fat percentage went down, even though they gained fat. Or they just had a really effective lean bulk, which again, will have the same visual consequences, but they didn't actually lose any fat mass. Mm -hmm. um, and because of the energetic differences in uh, lean tissue and fat tissue, most of the time when people think recomping is happening, they're actually in a slight deficit. Like, like if, you're, if your weight stayed roughly the same, but you clearly gained muscle, you were probably actually in a deficit, mm. right? Because the fat tissue has twice the energy, energetic value of the protein and the lean tissue you're putting on that shows up as scale weight is mostly water, right? So even when we do see scenarios of body weight staying the same, but then just looking better, they're probably in a deficit and they just were able to put on a little bit of muscle tissue. Mm. So true body recomposition um, should result in typically like slight amount of weight loss, right? Because uh, the, the muscle tissue component does not have as much energy. Hmm. And, and if you were at, at maintenance and making changes, you'd lose weight. So, but that's all confounded by the fact that when we step on a scale, it's not a DEXA scanner, right? It's measuring changes in everything. And if you're training, muscle damage, edema, you, you, you're a little bit heavier, right? So that's one reason you start taking creatine, right? More, a little bit more water retention. Initially you go on a higher carb diet. I think there's so many things that can confound the scale weight that are not even related to the topic of, of body recomposition, that it's almost impossible for someone to know whether they are experiencing body recomposition. Hmm. However, it's entirely possible and quite normal. Now, so what are the things that can affect them? So if someone is a, uh, a listener to this podcast, they're probably an intermediate or more, or more advanced than that, or at least, you know, a late stage novice. And 
they've made probably the majority of their, their new gains. And let's say they, they want to give recomp a shot. Um, it is going to be more challenging the leaner you are, which kind of flies in the face of some of the P ratio conversations, which we that may be a, a, a myth we need to bust in this conversation. I don't know. You can tell me. Um, because like I mentioned earlier, if you're not in a good physiological state to put on muscle, it's not going to happen. And being super lean and walking around lean all the time for most people is, is going to lead, lead them to be in a state where it's harder to put on muscle mass. Mm -hmm. But if you're anywhere higher than that, whether you're actually quite high in body fat or whether you're in a quote unquote normal or, or middling body fat range, you've got a decent chance of being able to put on muscle mass and maybe not have a significant change in fat mass or maybe even lose a little bit of fat mass, maybe, um, but typically not. Um, so you would accomplish this by being either in a slight deficit if you want to kind of want to recomp with actual fat mass loss or you just like you said earlier, you have to have a appropriate you know, increase in calories where you're trying to avoid not only just excess fat mass, but almost any visible changes in fat mass. So it, it, at worst, you want proportionate increases in fat mass so that your body fat percentage doesn't go up. Like in that uh, example of going from 180 to 190 with one pound of, of, of uh, a fat mass gain, still having the same body fat percentage with, with more muscle. So that looks like being basically very cautious, tracking very meticulously and having a very effective training program. And that will work to the degree that it can for you. So a highly advanced lifter can recomp, but it is going to be a necessarily slower process than what we recommended earlier. Um, so it just takes patience. And you also have to be on your shit. Like mm -hmm. you need to be tracking meticulously. Um, and often it's not, it's just not a good combination with a balanced life, you know, because it kind of requires the same level of meticulousness. Um that because like if, if you go well, I'm just going to look look at the output scale change, you know, and just make sure I'm not gaining any more than like a pound every two months or something like that. And I go like sure, but you know how much of that time are you now kind of spending all over the place? Like what does, does your lifestyle actually quite homogenous and you're getting that? Okay, you're good. But if not, most people are going to need to be whipping out the calorie tracker in the off season, you know, really making sure that their training is constantly stimulative. Like there's really no um, there's no points where you get to rest on your laurels because you can't. You, like if you, if you really just want to have a strict recomposition. So I think re recomp often happens quite naturally. And I don't think there's anything wrong with someone who is quote unquote skinny fat as a novice, just lifting and not worrying about it with their nutrition, just trying to focus on eating more high protein foods and eating healthier and generally seeing the scale trend up without tracking macros. And they will probably experience one of those categories of recomp. Um, so like that's the way to view it. But I think Recomping as a more advanced lifter, it is probably just a little less efficient, but it may be worth it if you're in a maintenance phase and you don't have like a competition on the horizon, you know, like, you know, if you're not a competitor, like, like what, what is the rush, right? And to some degree, you're not going to have to go through a six month period where you're actually going to lose some muscle mass worth the end and really, you know, beat yourself up to that contest prep process. Then I have to be like, all right, for the next six months, if you're competing back-to-back -back years or year and a half, if it's every other year, I'm going to just try to get everything out of my body. Because if you wanted to put on muscle mass at the fastest pace, don't compete in bodybuilding because then you won't have to starve yourself every season, you know, yeah. ironically. So anyway, I think uh, those are just my thoughts on recomposition. Um, the things that make it harder uh, are being more experienced. And it's not that it makes the process impossible. It is just that the rate of weight gain that you can meaningfully add muscle mass with is slow anyway. And now you're going, I don't want to put on any body fat, right? So it just makes that, that you're eating a smaller portion of a smaller pie.
Mm-hmm. Um, being really, really lean um, actually makes it harder to recomposition despite uh, stories to the contrary. Like if you look at what happens to bodybuilders immediately after a show, if the P ratio was a strict interpretation was accurate, you're shredded. So you should have the best P ratio. So once you start eating all kinds of things and training hard because you don't feel fatigued anymore, you should just turn into like the Akira monster because all you're putting on is muscle and you just become this, I wish. this Hulk-like thing. But no, in reality, what happens is you put on almost exclusively body fat and then a bunch of water tissue uh, and, and, and glycogen and shit like that. Um, so yeah, it is not until like you get out of that physiological state of just having starved yourself to where your body's going, Oh, I can prioritize muscle mass. Cause I actually just don't want you to die. Cause you're stuck in the Sahara for, for a month and you're at 4% body fat. You know, we're not, we're, we're, we're focusing on survival here is, is kind of our, 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 our physiology thinking, cause it's not realizing that, uh, you know, now we're in a modern world. So the, uh, the idea of a P ratio is just simply that the leaner you are, the more propensity you will have to put on muscle, which we know is just obviously false when we start looking at anecdotal evidence on, on, on bodybuilders and, and actually observational research on bodybuilders, or they would be putting on muscle mass out of competition. Um, and it also falls apart when you start to look at uh, attempts to put on muscle mass in people who are very high in body fat, um, which do just fine. You know, we have a ton of resistance training studies on people with obesity, um, and they are, despite some physiological things that might have a mechanism for impeding muscle gain, uh, theoretically, they're able to put it on just fine. Um, we have evidence looking at football players showing that linemen and wide receivers at very different body fat percentages in the offseason are gaining similar amounts of, of, uh, of, of, of uh, lean mass. And also we have an in-house meta-analysis that uh, Dr. Trexler and Greg Knuckles did it stronger by science, where they just took a bunch of studies where they gave open access data and they just plotted, okay, what is the body fat change and what is the body fat of these individuals and how much muscle mass do they gain? Is there a relationship there? And if anything, the relationship was slightly the other way that when you're higher in body fat um, and, and overall, it was like a null relationship, that there's no relationship between being too high in body fat and then impeding your ability to put on lean mass. Uh, but it, in some cases, it actually seemed like, oh, people higher in body fat might be able to put on lean mass more effectively to a very small degree. And that might just be the bottom end of that tail getting dragged down to people who are too lean rather than there being an advantage to being, you know, like super, super high in body fat. So anyway, I, uh, I just had a huge rant and ramble all over the place, but hopefully that helps people understand recomposition and prevents them from making the mistake of thinking, oh, I need to periodically diet so I can get lean enough so I can have an effective bulk. Um, that's not true. If you want to periodically diet and do like the mini cuts that we've been talking about, that is a competitor's concern because we eventually have to get shredded, you know, and all that body fat has to come off. So um, for everyone else who's a non-competitor, it really just comes down to, you know, what is healthy for me mentally and physically as a body fat to sustain, uh, which is probably higher than you want it to be initially until you kind of get your head around a non-social media influenced view of your body. Uh, and then, okay, well, I need to continually cut back to something around there or slightly lower than it. So I just have a runway to get back into my next surplus, or you could just kind of take that main gaining or gaintaining approach once you're at roughly around your, your, uh, your desired body fat. And the idea that you're going to be slightly less optimal in terms of your efficiency might be worth it. Cause then you don't have to do all this bulking cutting, uh, you know, calculations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, great points. And I think you just busted about a thousand TikTok videos out there who are misguided on body recomposition. So yeah, no, those are great points. And yeah, I like how you also mentioned about how, yeah, it can 
it can work for a wide range of people and even you know beyond necessarily the initial few months um for someone who's as they get more advanced you mentioned that yeah like you're eventually going to have slower progress with this kind of approach if you just say like i really don't want to put on fat at what kind of point in in someone's experience level would you say that it's it's less optimal you know for mm -hmm. to have a sort of main gaining approach like who who do you think it's appropriate to be recommending this to I will put forth that I see nothing wrong from the holistic perspective with even advanced or intermediate non-competitors doing a gain-taining approach or, or just kind of trying to recomp all the time because you don't need to get shredded and you don't have therefore a limited time frame of when to put on muscle. So like, I, I don't think it is a healthy mentality to be like, well, I've got to get to my, like my natty limit like, like there's a point rather than an asymptote, which is it's not the way it works. Um, by the time I'm 28 or I'm going to, or, or I, I should have quit lifting at all, you know, like a huge part of enjoying the process of putting on muscle and getting, getting bigger and, 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 uh, and working towards a physique is the process, right? The process that, that, that's probably the most enjoyable part. If, 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 and if it's not for you, I hate to say it, but without a change in mentality in five years, I, I doubt you're still going to be lifting because mm -hmm. I wouldn't do something for five years. I didn't enjoy. Um, so, so I think, I think that does require a mentality shift. And especially if you're someone who hates the cutting process or just finds it very challenging or like, why do I have to do this? And, and the only reason why you have to do it is because you're bulking hard before it. So you create a physique that you don't like, so you have to fix it. And then the question will be, well, why don't you just maybe take a slower approach? Mm -hmm. So you only have to do this maybe eight or nine or 10 months, or you just don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. So long as you're okay with potentially a slower rate of gain, and maybe sometimes finding a plateau that you can't break unless you actually mm -hmm. try to support that and being willing to do that every now and again. So that's my caveat for the advice that I'm going to give, which I would say pretty much from the intermediate stage onward, uh, it's going to be challenging to optimize the efficiency of muscle gain without having some degree of, of considering what we talked about earlier, like that bulk to cut ratio. Um, so, and, but, but that can look for an advanced lifter, like, so, so for myself, for example, um, I finished my more strength phase uh, at the, it, what is it, the uh, August of 2021. I did, uh, well, nationals got canceled for powerlifting. Um, but you know, I, I competed in my garage, hit some PRs and I was like, sweet. I'm pretty pleased with this strength focused phase that I've had since, you know, 2020. Um, and now I want to compete in 2023. So I've got like a year and a half. So for the next year, I want to really be focused on bodybuilding and I want to spend the majority of that time in a surplus. So I was uh, right around 93 and now I'm around like 95, 96. So in the last say September, October, November, December, January, February, in the last six months, I put on three kilos, mm -hmm. right? That's about a pound a month. Mm -hmm. And, and, and all, not all of that is, 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 is tissue, you know, I'm eating a lot more. So if I was just to, to kind of go back to not trying to eat in a surplus, I might drop a pound right there. So we're talking about for someone like me, like gaining a pound a month is what an intermediate would probably consider like a, uh, like a gain-taining approach. But I think a pound a month is very appropriate for someone who is, you know, hoping to have their stage weight go up by a kilogram, you know, four years later. Yeah. So I, I, I think what that looks like is very context dependent based on your experience. 
So, I mean, the, the alternative for me, if I was to be like, you know what, I'm just going to kind of gain tame is me just to try to stay at 93 and maybe one day look up and be like, you know, I look a little leaner at 93 than I was before. Um, and I'm a little hungrier. Okay. Let's see if I can do the same thing at 94 for the next two years, you know? And I, so, so for me, I'm actually okay with that. But when I decide I want to compete in bodybuilding, then I get after it a little more. And I do notice that I can, you know, if I really focus my training primarily on bodybuilding, and if I put myself into a place where I'm, I'm in a surplus on most days, even if a small one, I do get better gains. I do see that my physique starts to change in those, you know, faster trajectory. Um, but it's the kind of thing that you need the, the eye and the experience of someone who has been at it for 17 years to kind of really see. And I think most novices wouldn't even notice a difference between me, you know, my physique changes uh, from, from August till now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, that's a good point that all, all this is very context dependent and a, a lot of it depends on your level of experience. Bring it back kind of to the more, you know, beginner versus early intermediate person who let's say is kind of like a middling body fat range and they want to recomp a lot of, in terms of the nuts and bolts of how to, a lot of people will say, yeah, like set your calories somewhere around maintenance, or as you mentioned before, not think too much about it, but let's say they actually want to get a bit leaner and like, they want to be in a deficit and they want to lose mm. fat, but also build muscle, which is probably going to be very viable if they're uh, relatively beginner. What range of calorie balances do you think it's possible to recomp in? I think you, you will probably, if you're like an, a true novice, so long as you're not dieting in such a way that it is pretty damn harsh, mm-hmm. uh, you will probably put on a little bit of muscle mass. You're just going to slow down your kind of new gains, if you will. And I think the smaller that deficit, the more likely you'll be able to put on uh, some muscle mass in that process. So eight, like a 10. So like if someone was in that position, I would probably say, yeah, try like a 10% deficit, you know, and run that for like six months. And at that point, you should be noticeably leaner and you will have also put on a little bit of muscle mass. And at that point, okay, let's actually do like, like a, like a proper gaining phase um, where at, at like at the least aggressive, you would want to see a slight gain in body fat because that would indicate you're, you're probably gaining at an appropriate rate. But yeah, I think you could probably have a 10, 20, 25% deficit and still be able to put on muscle mass in that scenario that you're talking about mm-hmm. with it scaling down the larger the deficit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, that's really reassuring for people. I think in, you know, and realizing that this is a, especially if you're a beginner, it's a very robust process. Like, especially once you start getting your training under control and really thinking about things and seeking protein and all those things, a lot is possible. Mm-hmm. I think another thing to consider is that like muscle mass is a slow process. And if you're in a deficit, you're slowing it down a little more. And most people, the timeline that they're in a deficit is short. So the idea that we can't recomp is also sometimes defined by the fact that, you know, people are only dieting for like half a year. So like they tried to put on a little muscle during their cut and they're unsure if it happened. Well, it's like, you also just, it's a short period of time, you know, and you can't cut and you really shouldn't cut indefinitely, right? Mm-hmm. So it it uh it's it's not the right time scale. All like your the focus of your goals becomes the time scale that you scale to. And I think that is sometimes a downfall of 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 being on the cut train all the time, is that you can see almost weekly or bi-weekly changes in your physique when you're dropping body fat. So it kind of gets addictive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but if you, if you want to really have a physique that you're truly proud of, once you diet down, 
now we're talking about the time scale of decades, you know? So, so I think, I think there is some, something to be said for, for that. You know, I think a lot of people who are kind of really focused on not just recomp, but like simultaneous fat loss and and muscle gain. So that more hardcore deficit, like that's probably going to be a net deficit, um, substantial fat mass while gaining muscle mass. They're, they're probably too focused on the short term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting kind of point about, and you, you alluded to this earlier about how as bodybuilders, like it's ironic how I think bodybuilding is one of the only sports where competing actually harms you, you know, like, like it actually costs time and it costs like a lot of physiological adaptation that is negative towards the, the goal of building muscle, like losing the fat in once you break beyond a certain point is detrimental. So yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting little dynamic that you have to take Mm -hmm. into consideration. Absolutely. And the, the, because bodybuilders are the most impressive uh, physiques on the planet, we, we, I am one of them. So people inherit the tools and techniques of bodybuilders. And often they are not the best tools for non-competitive bodybuilding. You know, Um, I think this is a big reason why a lot of people sometimes develop unhealthy relationships around their food and their body because they're, they're learning from people who are have to compete at shredded conditions, you know? Mm. So, yeah. 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 That's, that's something that it's important for people to kind of take with a grain of salt when they see people on Instagram or social media, or like even watching us, you know, like I'll be in prep by, you know, post an Instagram story of me at the grocery store, buying a bunch of diet soda pickles sauerkraut just like you know it's like big box of splenda it's just like well i mean if you're if you're a more recreational lifter some of these things might not be necessary no i mean you're you're you have strategies in place to make a intentionally temporary period of time more survivable but the average person who is out there trying to cut and might be learning from you um is hopefully listening to this they understand the difference is actually trying to cut to a point that they then, then plan to sustain long-term, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. and what do bodybuilders do after their show? They go eat a large pizza, right? Like yeah. they are not trying to sustain it. They want to get back to a point where they can then therefore put on muscle mass again and muscle mass. They just lost from the intensive dieting phase. So it is an, it's like an intentional yo-yo diet, which we know is not something you should intend in, in, in the, uh, the real world of, of non-competitive <laughs> bodybuilding. You know, where it's like, you know, you might go through bulk and cut phases, but you're going to cut to something that you think you can sustain, or that is, you know, something that's not actually going to, like you said, harm you or harm your long-term goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's funny. I have a good friend who's a dietitian and she's always kind of shaking her head when I'm going through the extreme prep phase. So yeah, anyways, that's been a great talk on, I think, broad overview, some interesting strategy for the bodybuilders out there and good tips for people thinking about recomp just to finish up on a fun question taking one from the facebook group someone asked about range of motion training so total pivot of topic but this this has been something that's been talked about pretty frequently in the in recent times in the science building sphere kind of the idea of full range of motion versus the most effective range of motion Mm -hmm. where you know people talk about yeah, like different ranges of motion for hypertrophy. What are your thoughts on the role of, yeah, different range of motion and I suppose partials? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. And I think um, what is becoming clearer and clearer as more data and especially more applied studies come out uh, is that 
not all partials are created equal. Um, and one of, if not the main driving factor for why full range of motion training most of the time seems to produce more hypertrophy when it's appropriately matched to a partial range of motion condition is that the full range of motion contains the portion of that range mm -hmm. where the muscle and therefore the sarcomere potentially, depending on the anatomy of the muscle and the exercise, uh, is at a stretched position, which seems to be a, a signaler for anabolism and hypertrophy. So it is training a muscle at a longer muscle length that trains sarcomeres at a longer length that is in, inducing a, an additional hypertroph hypertrophic stimulus um, that, uh, that is potentially the main juice, if you will, no pun intended, behind full range of motion training, um, rather than just kind of some esoteric idea of, you know, full range of motion that is better because, because science said so, right? Uh, that said, I think it's important to remember that like isometric training that does produce muscle growth and yes, training at shorter muscle lengths, uh, is probably not as good at training at longer muscle lengths, but it is not a binary thing. So these are, are relatively small differences. Um, you wouldn't want to complete like all of your training at short muscle lengths. Um, and you wouldn't want to try to train only at long muscle lengths or try to make sure every single exercise was carried out to the longest muscle length possible at the sacrifice of form or potentially at the cost of inducing pain or et cetera. But I think it's mostly just an interesting tidbit of how we understand why, uh, you know, full range of motion training is driving uh, better growth in studies. So I think there's nothing wrong with uh, experimenting with some partials. Uh, where you're using the longer muscle length position. So an example of that would be uh, doing flies or cable crossovers and only coming up to say, you know, maybe when viewed from like your head on, your your hands are, are maybe coming up in kind of like a V position, but not all the way up to where your hands touch one another. Hmm. Um, or doing the bottom range of a leg extension that's actually been researched. Or the bottom, you know, third or half of a bicep curl. Um, maybe if you're just focusing on that range and that's where you go to failure, you're spending more of your total time at a long muscle length, maybe that'd even be better than full range of motion training. We don't know that yet. This, the research we have just suggests that, uh, you know, doing that leg extension at the bottom or doing that bicep curl at the bottom compared to doing that bicep curl at just the top or that leg extension at just the top produces significantly more hypertrophy. So I think it's, it's interesting, but I think also, um, it's not, it's not like all of a sudden this changes everything. Yeah. We, we shouldn't, we should never, uh, you know, uh, train at anything except long muscle lengths. And there are other interactions. So like you might find that the, uh, the highest point of required force production of a movement is at a short muscle length. Is that important? You know, would, would, would like, would, is, is it worthwhile to select certain exercises that bias a shortened position? Would that help at all? And that's a hard question to answer. Like we do know that training at longer, longer muscle length seems to produce not only just greater hypertrophy, but that it is primarily driven by hypertrophy in the distal region of that muscle, hmm. right? So distal and proximal just means further from the joint or closer to the joint. While if you compare that long muscle length partial to a shortened muscle length partial, the shortened muscle length seems to produce more proximal hypertrophy. Hmm. However, and so some people may go, well, therefore I should use exercises that train and bias a short muscle length and a long muscle length. And I go, maybe, but we don't actually have a good comparison here because a full range of motion training protocol 
includes both the long muscle length and the short muscle length. So does it even matter? You know, and I think that that's a piece that I've heard like not fully thought through, in my opinion. People are going, hey, long muscle lengths are great, but they produce differential regional hypertrophy. So we should be including short muscle length, even though it's it's worse. Uh, but we want that that proximal hypertrophy. And I'm going, you, you know, just doing a full bicep curl gets both the fully extended and shortened position, right? <laughs> you know, like maybe we don't have to choose, you know? So um, what I would love to see in future studies would be say uh, three groups, a group training at long muscle lengths, a group training at short muscle lengths, and then a group training at full range of motion and looking at not only at total hypertrophy, but also uh, regional hypertrophy and seeing, does it all come out in the wash or what? So I think that is really uh, where we need to go for the future to have better understandings of this question. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just cool to see these kind of hot topics coming out. And especially when you still want to see more research to really understand, that's where it gets interesting. I have a few thoughts on this as well. I think that a lot of people kind of get caught up in the partials where they're just like, yeah, I'm going to compare, you know, but the problem is when you compare, say, like, a set of eight on, you know, your, your lengthened bicep curl, just the lower part of it versus a set of eight on the full range. I mean, the thing is the full range of motion also contains that stretched position, but you're sacrificing volume is the way I see it is like, you're actually, if you're reducing the range of motion, I mean, people, you can look at volume in terms of sets times reps times weight, but also times distance lifted. Like if you think about volume kind of from a total work perspective, so I think that if, the, if you just like traded sets, you would actually be sacrificing some degree of volume in terms of trading, you know, for so I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay. Cause I think, so let, let, let's take a look at the volume that you might use. Right. So if you are only doing the longer muscle length partial with the same load that you might be doing the full range of motion, you would be able to do more reps though, you know? So it's going to end because volume is, is, is sets times reps times load. So the amount of, and also like, hmm. does all volume count towards our growth? Yeah, no, yeah. You know? That's a good caveat. Uh, it's, yeah. So if you, if you, yeah, if you're like, you can get around that by equating, you know, RIRs and yeah, exactly. So if you did, I, I think that if you compared a full range of motion training protocol on a bicep curl, uh, and you equated with, with RIR and you choose whatever load you need to fail in, let's say the eight to 12 rep range, right? And you have the other group only do the bottom half of that curl, but they go to the same RIR. I don't think you'd see a, a much of a difference in muscle growth. And you might even get a little more out of the long muscle length position because all of the effort they're putting forth and all of the fatigue that they're generating is in a potentially more stimulative position. So that, that would be my hypothesis is, is either, I probably would go like, if I actually wrote it down in the, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the paper, I would probably go with, I don't think there'll be a significant difference, but I wouldn't be surprised if the longer muscle length training uh, actually produced, you know, better outcomes, but I'd love to see that study done. Yeah, no, that's super cool. I, yeah, I'm like, I'm very partial or <laughs> funny, <very laughs> partial towards, uh, you know, stretched positions. And I like, mm. I, I strongly believe in at least incorporating some stretched work in in a lot of your training i think i think the only uh caveat in terms of my hypothesizing is that i think it also comes with some more you know like damage yeah which, it does which that's will, actually a very good point which will become an increasing increasingly important factor for more advanced individuals 
So that's kind of why I don't believe in people really chasing just stretched work, like stretch, stretch, stretch work. Like I'm just going to do lots of heavy bottom range RDLs, you know, or something like that. Yeah. So. I think it, it wouldn't be an unreasonable question to ask, would that increase the occurrence of muscle injury too? You know, um, I, I could see that potentially happening. It is uh, a slightly higher risk. If I had to guess, doesn't mean it's a high risk. It doesn't mean it isn't, isn't a, a reasonable risk that might be worth it. But yeah, like doing end range of motion training is, you know, that's, it's your end range of motion for a reason, right? <laughs> so, uh, and, and yeah, being, in, being in that stretch sarcomere position, like some of the, uh, some, some of the muscle damage that we get is stretch mediated, you know, there are, uh, stretch channels, which, which, uh, will result in the process, which leads to muscle damage to a greater degree. And how much can the repeated bout effect mitigate that? Will it actually influence your total volume that you can do or the rate of recovery uh, or, or the frequency of training that you can do? Um, I would guess that if you just tried to construct a program of entirely you know, long muscle length training for every single muscle group, mm -hmm. that you would probably be substantially sore and maybe at a higher injury risk. There, so there probably is some balance here, uh, in my opinion, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great thoughts. Fun, fun, fun talk today, Eric. And I, yes, think, yeah, I think people are really going to benefit from this chat and we're lucky to have Eric on the show. What's new with you in terms of, you know, any new developments and where can people find you? Yeah. New stuff uh, here is just that uh, in New Zealand, we are moving on to the kind of the endemic COVID phase that probably the rest of the world got to a little earlier uh, where we are mostly just trying to limit hospitalizations and, uh, you know, safeguard against the, uh, the functionality of our uh, medical system. So that means we're back to the lab, which is, which is great. Um, and I have a bunch of, you know, students, both masters and PhD, uh, and even one honor student who were kind of on pause because of COVID. So now we've got a whole bunch of people getting back into the lab. Research is being continued. We've got people completing their PhDs, completing their masters. So I'm excited to um, be putting out more research in the coming uh, coming years that aren't meta-analyses and surveys. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's that. And then of course, uh, like I kind of mentioned as using myself as an example, I'm in an off season phase where I'm just focused on, you know, trying to put on as much muscle mass as possible, which is fun. I'm enjoying it. Um, there's a whole lot less squat benching and deadlifting, but there's a whole lot more, you know, lateral raises and curls and, and, uh, and, and stringers. So it's good times. Stuff. And for anyone who hasn't, check out mass, which is monthly applications and strength support. This is a, a, a drill put out every month by Greg Knuckles, Mike Zordos, Eric Trexler, Eric Helms. Oh, wait a second. Eric Helms. It's the That's guy me. on the show. <laughs> so. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. We have a, we have a great uh, monthly research review and we've, we've, we've done a lot on partials. We've done a lot on uh, recomposition uh, over the years, uh, and, and surplus and understanding energy balance and all that. So it's a, it's a great place. If you're interested in subscribing to where we take, uh, the most relevant to strength and physique sports studies that were published in the last month and we review them. Now uh, we've got a, a good overview of, of, of the studies that come out to you each month. And, you know, we're all people who have done research as well as practitioners and coaches. So it's, what we hope is a really relevant take on that research and summary for you. So, yeah. And if you don't want to, you know, purchase that subscription, if, if you got bills to pay, that's all good. You can find a lot of free content at 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. From there, you can find links to our podcast. You can find links to our blog posts, YouTube, the whole nine yards. Great. 
So yeah, people can check that out in the description. I'm an affiliate for Mass, so you can hit up my link, which will be in the description. And thanks for being on the show, Eric. Always a pleasure, sir. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.